Okay. To recap a little bit, I guess it's been a couple of weeks since we since we met. Um, our, our main focus at first was on the resurrection, right? That that's the hope for humanity of what God is going to do to to save us, to restore us. Uh, it's not about part of us or our souls. It's immaterial part going off to heaven. It's about God recreating all of us, right, uh, with a perfected body, not the kind of bodies we have now. Um, and so that's that's a consistent witness of uh, at least the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament that that's our hope. And then from there, we talked about how, right, that's the hope for humanity. The hope for creation is actually very similar, right? And so there's a phrase that talks about the restoration of all things, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, or other ways it's, it's talked about this idea of God restoring everything, God redeeming all of creation, right? Because again, God made it in the beginning and it was good and it's, it's uh, messed up by sin and death. And so God is going to work to fix that. And so that's the big hope, right? The big story of scripture is about God restoring all things, including creation. Last time we look at some of the passages that seem to say that our, our ultimate hope is, is going to heaven or that, that our home is heaven, right? Rather than on a restored earth. Uh, because again, that's, that's kind of the traditional view, right? That, that God's going to just take us out of earth and maybe destroy it. And we're all that matters. And so we looked at like First Thessalonians where it talks about the Lord in the air, uh, John 14 about Jesus preparing a place, Philippians 3 that we're citizens of heaven, and to see how those still fit in this same idea, right? That, um, that well, there is a chance, or we can't, this is what we're going to talk about tonight, the idea that, that uh, do we go to heaven at the point of death, um, right? And that that's kind of this intermediate state, but that the final hope is this restoration of all things. And so the question, there's Jane. Uh, the question tonight and, and next week is about um, how should we think about people that are waiting for the resurrection, right? Those who have died in Christ. All right, so uh, we're going to look at some passages that we think of when we're trying to decide or figure out what Scripture is saying about where are where are the dead in Christ now. Um, and basically, there's there's two views on this, right? Either that those in Christ who are dead are basically sleeping, or everybody is basically sleeping, or that their soul is in heaven, right? Whether it's kind of an unconscious state or it's a conscious state. Um, I think more people tend to assume the second one, and so that's, that's what we're going to try and see what Scripture says about these things. Um, but it does kind of raise these questions, right? If the final state, our final hope, when Jesus comes back is that he'll take us to heaven, then how can we think that, right, you're already in heaven, right? It'd be like you're going to heaven twice. And so that doesn't really seem to make as much sense. And as we've talked about before, your soul going to heaven is not really the idea behind the resurrection um, most of the time. Um, and yet, right, the idea of sleeping, resting is, is not bad. Rest is a common image uh, through Old Testament. Uh, Hebrews especially talks about the rest that we hope for. And right, we all like rest, so that's not an, uh, a bad way to think about where we people might be. And there is commonly through the New Testament, it talks about those who have fallen asleep, right? That's the literal translation. Um, but that's, that's pretty clearly a, a euphemism, right? Those that have died uh, means, or fallen asleep means uh, dead. 
And so uh, at what level do we just take that? Well, that's just a metaphor or is that actually pointing to something that's true about what's going on for, for those people, right? So you can see it either way. But I think what we'll see over the next couple of weeks is that there are more passages that point us to being in heaven or being with Christ somehow or with God after death, right? This is life. That's life after death, the going to heaven. And then as uh, N.T. Wright says that resurrection is life after life after death. And right? so there's kind of this intermediate stage of being in heaven. And then there's still the, the greater hope of resurrection, right? So it's, it's okay to talk about going to heaven. Um, just to see, but the point is that's not the final hope. That's not all we're, we're waiting for. Uh, because resurrection in, the, in this new creation, that's even better than, than what we expect, right? So uh, kind of, to me, one of the exciting things about this is it's showing it's an even greater hope than what we've sometimes been given, uh, and then just going to heaven and having a never-ending worship service. I don't know mm-hmm. if, that appeals to, if that appeals to you or not. <laughs> so let's look at some of these passages that seem to point to, to this idea. So first, let's go to Luke chapter 22. Or, 23, with the, uh, the man on the cross, the thief on the cross with Jesus. I think this even came up at the end of our last class time, which is good because that shows we're kind of going the same direction. Uh, so Luke 23, starting in verse 39. As one of the criminals who were hanging, hang there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we're getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. All right, so here's this idea, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. So we're going to break down what that might be about. All right, so this the, the rebel on the cross, right, he's not, I just want to point this out, he's not just a thief, he didn't just steal things, he was like a political rebel against Rome. Uh, that's, that's the people that Rome crucified. Um, he's referring to this future event, when you come into your kingdom, right, he still believes that Jesus somehow is the Messiah, even though he's being crucified. And we'll come back to the idea of what it means to, to, for the kingdom to come. Uh, but then Jesus responds where he talks about paradise. Now, it's an interesting word choice. That, that word, um, when Old Testament's in Greek, is the same word for Eden, right? And so you can even ask the question, okay, well, is that heaven? Is that something else? Uh, it's not a common way to talk about it, but you can think of, of Eden as like heaven on earth, which would actually fit with that idea, right? It, it, we're waiting for heaven and earth to come together. Eden is a good picture of that. But the question really is about, well, what does he mean by today, right? Uh, today you'll be with me. Um, now, if, if you go with the idea that the dead in Christ are basically sleeping, unconscious, time is kind of relative, right? As far as you know, it's going to be today, right? You die, you wake up, and there you are, right, with, with Jesus coming back into, into his kingdom. Uh, so, and there's also, you know, this is in Luke, earlier in Luke, uh, with the story of Zacchaeus. He talked about how today salvation has come to this house, right? And that didn't mean that Zacchaeus went to heaven. It just means that he was experiencing uh, forgiveness and grace, right? So perhaps this is less about a place and more of a, a state of being. It's, it's to experience God's forgiveness and love and grace 
Now, that itself is paradise. Right? That's, that's kind of one of the other questions with all these ideas when they talk about paradise or uh, the grave. Is that a physical place somehow, or is that just a way of referring to the state people are in? There's also this question of, well, where was Jesus between the death, his death and resurrection? Right? Did he go to heaven? And uh, this is a, a kind of a hard thing to figure out according to scripture. There's some verses that point to it, but there is a tradition just within the church, this idea that when Jesus died, he descended into uh, the place of the dead, sometimes called Hades, which is the Greek word uh, related to the idea of Sheol, right? So Jesus, when he dies, he goes uh, to the place of the dead. Um, there's some biblical support. Ephesians 4 talks about him descending to the lower parts of the earth. Uh, 1 Peter 4 talks about the gospel being preached to the dead, possibly by Christ. Um, there's something called the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is a very early confession by the church. I don't think it necessarily actually goes back to the 12 apostles, uh, but it just kind of lists, lays out you know, some of the things we believe, and it talks about after he died, he descended to the dead, and then he was raised. And if you remember that, uh, that icon that we looked at a few weeks ago um, of, of the resurrection, right? Again, this is not a, a literal picture of, of what necessarily happened. Uh, but in that icon, we saw Jesus, let's see if I can pull it back up. Uh, I don't know if I can find it. Uh, Jesus is pulling Adam and Eve out of the grave, right? It's a symbol of, of uh, Jesus saving hum humanity as a whole from from the dead. Here, I can, okay, I think I found it. Let's see if this works. All right, right. So here's this idea, this uh, symbolic picture. Uh, the guy down there at the bottom is Hades himself, right? Death himself is chained. Uh, Jesus has broken the gates, and he's pulling Adam and Eve, humanity, out of out of the grave. Right? But he had to go to the place of the dead in order to do that. All right. So the point of all that is just to say, uh, according at least to church tradition, uh, Jesus didn't go to paradise that day on Good Friday when he died, he went to the place of the dead so that he could bring them out of it. So, uh, but there's this other question of, well, when does Jesus come into his kingdom, right? That's what the, the, the guy asked. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So when you hear that idea, what does that make you think of? When, when does that happen? When does Jesus come into his kingdom? Or when does the kingdom come? What are some options? Well, I mean, there's the, the kind of traditional, especially what I was told as a kid and what I think we generally think of as kids is that, you know, someday Jesus is going to come back and then there's going to be his kingdom, whatever that, whether that's, you know, the, the heaven like described in four, you know, four walls or whatever and pearly mm -hmm. gates or whether that's yeah, something yeah. else uh, that, that that's, that's Christ's kingdom. Yeah. Right. So the second coming, right. That's when he fully comes into his kingdom. And I think that's probably the fullest expression of it. Uh, yeah. But other ideas or other times we think about, the kingdom coming well i think anytime we are fulfilling the law um, anytime we're um loving god loving others oh it's weird it'll probably pick you up from here okay um anytime we're loving god or loving others i feel like that's bringing a little bit of Christ's kingdom, God's kingdom to earth. I mean, that's kind of our job yeah, as right. Christians. That's even the prayer, right? Your kingdom come. Um, and so that, that happens anytime. Yeah. 
Sorry, buddy. <laughs> uh, yeah, and in fact, Jesus in Luke, uh, like in, in chapter 17, 21, he talks about the kingdom is within you, or the kingdom is among you, or at hand, right? Yeah, with Jesus himself, his presence, his ministry, the kingdom is somehow here, right? Yes, the full expression is when he returns, uh, but we can think of it being present. And even in his resurrection, right, that's the kingdom coming in a particular way. Or sometimes we associate that with the church, right? In Acts 2, when the spirit comes, uh, the kingdom is advancing through that. So, again, all this is, is kind of flexible. You can take it as he's saying, yeah, you're going to be with God um, right now at this point. Uh, but it's more of you're, you're connecting with the kingdom, right? If you're recognizing that Jesus, that, that he's the Messiah, and you're, you're confessing that you're in the wrong, and you're asking for forgiveness, then you're kind of already in, right? You're already getting it. All right, well, we're going to go to Revelation for our next few little stories, which is always exciting. <laughs> uh, so a couple notes just on Revelation, that are, on reading Revelation responsibly. Uh, first is that Revelation has a pastoral purpose that it was written to particular people at a particular place in a particular time, right? And we even know who those people are because they are addressed at the beginning of the letter to the seven churches, and they're going through persecution from the Roman Empire. Some people are being killed. Some people are just feeling the pressure to kind of go in with the empire and, and kind of not be true to their, their Christian confession. And so uh, this letter is responding to their situation. It's not just this uh, open description of the end times for whenever, right? And it's definitely not written primarily to 21st century Christians. I think there is a lot of value in Revelation for us, but we have to see what it meant to them before we know what it means for us. And the second thing is that Revelation is a very symbolic book. Um, it's apocalyptic genre. There's not much else like that in scripture. And so we should see it as uh, pretty much everything in it is, is somehow symbolic. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not true, right? We often think that it has to be literal to be true, but that's a very modernist perspective. Uh, and so it is true, but, but not often in a literal way. And so that's kind of the challenge is, okay, what is the truth it's trying to communicate with these images and pictures and things, uh, even if it's not literally how things might be happening. All right, so with those caveats, let's go to Revelation chapter six. It's the scene of the, uh, the martyrs before the throne of God. Starting in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters, who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. All right, so here we see these martyrs before the throne. Uh, and it's, it's kind of unclear whether it's just like, like you have to be martyred in order to, to be there, or if it includes more people, uh, the grammar can go, go different ways. But yeah, it's this picture of believers in heaven with God. And right, you can tell, obviously, the timing is before the final resurrection. And so this is kind of describing our current, current state, current time. How would you describe their, their state there? How would you describe their attitude about what's happening and where they're at and what they want? Impatient? I mean, they're, they're tired of waiting, right? Okay, yeah, they're waiting for something. How long? Which is very much a, 
a lament psalm kind of question. We see that question there a lot. Uh, right, come on, God, aren't you going to do something about this? Right, and again, kind of understand that they were killed for their faith and, and trusting that God is going to make things right. And so they're saying, "All right, God, when when are you going to do that? Are you going to do it?" It says they're told to rest a little longer. So there's that idea again that um, they're resting in heaven. Uh, although, like you said, they seem a little impatient, not the most restful. Uh, they're, they're waiting for right? Things are incomplete. Um, and so, again, that's, this gives you this idea again that, uh, yes, they're in heaven, but that's not the final hope uh, just to, to be there after we die. That even the people that are in heaven now are still waiting for what God's going to do for this final judgment and what all is going to come with that. Well, it's almost like they're looking for uh, some sort of revenge against those that yeah. had uh, uh, been against them and had, had, had uh, been against them. So they're they're looking for they're kind of looking for they want to see God's revenge. Yeah, right. Uh, vengeance uh, or justice. Right. That's that's one of yeah. the big issues with with Revelation too, and and how it's kind of hard for us to read it is this. A faithful call for justice, or is it a little bloodthirsty sometimes? Uh, it might sound that way to us because we have not experienced any sort of persecution like this. Um, but it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to judge, but it does seem like, well, they just want they just want God to kill a bunch of people. That doesn't seem very Christ-like. Um, but you know, there's the idea that, yeah, we should expect God to do something, right? It, it wouldn't be just of God to just kind of ignore what what has gone wrong in creation and the people that are oppressing others even now right so there's a faithful way to hope for that but it's well it, it, and it's easy for us to judge them because we had not been through what they had been through mm -hmm. yeah i've often heard it said today that you know the best people people in the best place to read revelation are people that are experiencing a lot of persecution it's going to make a lot more sense to them than it would for us and it's kind of wrong for people like us who haven't gone through any persecution, be like, "Yeah, God, kill all these people!" Right? Like, <laughs> we have we haven't gone through anything really to be calling for that, and so that's that's where another place where I think people need to be careful with how they read and interpret this book. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go to uh, chapter seven. Get another scene of of people for God's throne. So, chapter seven, I'll read nine and ten, and then thirteen through seventeen. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where do they come from? I said to him, Sir, you're the one that knows. Then he said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Right, so there's this picture of this multitude, right? It's, it's diverse from everywhere, every language, every type of people are all there before the throne. And again, this seems to be a scene describing now rather than after the second coming, right? Uh, verse three, 
it's still in this same scene. It talks about uh, there's still people on the earth uh, and they're kind of protecting those people from all the stuff that's coming. Uh, and so again, it's, it's given this idea that currently uh, those who have died are before God's throne and, and they're praising him. And I think you see a lot of comforting images here. What, what kind of things do you see that, that point to the comfort of those who have already died? It's especially in that, that last song there, 13 to 15 to 17. Right? Hunger no more, thirst no more, no more heat. Uh, this pastoral image of shepherding to the springs of life, right? Very much like Psalm, Psalm 23. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing you notice is all those things are, are future tense. Um, he will be their shepherd. He will guide them. He will wipe the tears away. So you can understand it as God doing those things. And yet, again, there's still that, that future hope. This is not the final state, uh, but they are with God there. And it's, they seem a little more peaceful. They're not <laughs> asking God to do all these things and take care of things, um, but they're with him. All right. So not a lot to, to see there. It's kind of the same idea. All right, well, now we're getting into something that's uh, a little more complicated, and we probably won't have time for every, every little bit of it. But let's go to Revelation chapter 20. We get the uh, binding of Satan and the millennium. So we're not going to cover everything you could say about the millennium, thankfully. <laughs> All right. We may do Revelation at some point soon, maybe this summer. We'll see, and then we can really get into that. Again, the, the point here is just to see the answer to this question of, okay, what, where should we see, think of the people being that uh, have died now while they're waiting for resurrection. So chapter 20, I'll read one through six. It's mostly about four through six, but I'll, I'll read it all. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit, and locked and sealed it over him, so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. All right. So, a lot there. And uh, really all of Revelation 19 to 22 to the end are all these different visions of God's final victory. And, and one of the ways that I've heard it described is you can think of it as looking at the same event from different perspectives, almost like a kaleidoscope. And so, you know, it's not necessarily that it's saying first this happens, then this, then this, but it's, it's seeing the same thing happening in different ways, right? Again, it's poetic, it's symbolic. Um, it's not just like the, the game plan for how God's going to gonna do all these things. So, uh, think less in terms of chronology, and then also, again, with, with Revelation, numbers are always symbolic. I wouldn't take really any number, literally, aside from the seven churches. And so a thousand years, a thousand is just means a lot in Revelation, uh, in apocalyptic language, right? So 
it's it's not talking about a literal thousand years. It's just talking about this this long period. And so I would argue uh, that this millennial reign that he's talking about here is what's happening from Jesus' ministry until his return. Right? That that's the period that the millennium is referring to. Um, right? Because we can understand that Christ currently is reigning. Uh, we saw that in First Corinthians fifteen. Hebrews 2 talks about this, but he hasn't yet fully established his reign over all the principalities and powers, right? Uh, death is not fully defeated yet, and yet we can see that Christ is seated on the throne in heaven after the resurrection. And then also this idea of Satan being bound, right? Um, I think that also refers to Jesus' ministry. Uh, let's actually go and look at Mark chapter 3, and we'll see... Uh, I think something that connects to what he's talking about here. Mark chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. All right, because again, uh, again I, we could spend a lot of time talking about different ways that people interpret this. Some think there's literally going to be a point when Jesus sort of comes back and there's this special reign for certain people and Satan can't do anything. Um, but I, I think that's taking it too literally. So in Mark chapter 3, Jesus, he's been casting out demons. And, uh, you know, Mark is very much uh, seen as like this contest between the powers of uh, Satan and the powers of, of God's kingdom through Christ. And so Jesus is talking about, right, and people are like, oh, well, you're just doing this for Satan. And he's saying that, that doesn't make any sense. So uh, Mark three twenty six, Jesus says, if Satan has risen against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. No one can enter a strong, strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man then indeed the house will be plundered, right? Uh, I think in that metaphor, uh, Jesus is talking about how he is tying up the strong man, which is Satan, and taking back his stuff, which would be us, right? The, the, through his ministry, Jesus is defeating the power of Satan. He's bound in the sense. And so we, more people can come to God. In fact, if you look closely in what uh, Revelation says, going back there, he says he will deceive the nations no more. And we hear nations just as a general term, but that's the word that Jewish people would use to refer to the Gentiles. Right? And so it's very much a New Testament concept that through the ministry of Jesus, uh, his death and resurrection, all people can come to God. It's not just limited to Jewish people anymore, but the nations, the Gentiles, can now come. They're no longer deceived by, by Satan. doesn't mean that right, evil has no power, but... Um, it's later that Satan gets actually destroyed, but here he's just kind of, he's limited in that sense. So I think that's how we can understand the idea of the millennium and Satan being bound. That's, that's what we're living in now. Another kind of tricky thing here is John in Revelation talks about, I think it's two pairs of first and seconds, but he only gives two of the four, right? So if you, if you got the handout, you can see a little chart there. So he mentions the first resurrection in verse 5, and he, then he mentions the second death in verse 6. So to me, that implies that there is a, if there's a second death, there's obviously a first death. And if there's a first resurrection, that probably means there's a second resurrection, right? Now that's, that's me uh, filling in some gaps there, but that seems to make most sense, right? And so I think the first resurrection that he's referring there to is, is this idea of going to heaven at death, right? It's for those that are in Christ. Um, if, if you weren't in Christ at the point of death, uh, then you're 
just kind of waiting for the final judgment, right? They don't get that first resurrection. And that does go against the normal way that the New Testament talks about resurrection as being uh, body and soul coming back together. Um, this would be one of the only places where it talks about the soul going to heaven as a form of resurrection. But I think that's where we can th- see where he's saying, well, it's the first resurrection, right? So it's not the, the full one. And so the second resurrection, right, for filling in that gap would be what the rest of the New Testament is talking about when we're returned uh, to a perfected, transformed spiritual body, right? So that's what scripture normally means by the resurrection of the dead. Right? So first resurrection is the soul going to heaven. Second resurrection is uh, resurrection of the body. And then, uh, like it says, there's the second death. So I think that would mean the first death is just, well, that's normal human death, right? What happens to, to loved ones? Um, those that are not in Christ are in the grave in Hades. And again, I, I take that as more metaphorical, uh, but they're not, uh, they're not anywhere else, right? And so the second death, which he talks about in verse six, would be the uh, final judgment, right? And in Revelation, they're cast into the lake of fire. Um, so we can understand that probably as, as hell. And so the point would be that nobody is there yet, right? Nobody's sent to hell until the final. Judgment. That's still coming. Um, otherwise, what's the point of final judgment, right? Why would you, why would it talk so often about Jesus coming as a judge if you already get judged when, um, when you die, right? So people are waiting, but if you're in Christ, as it talks about later, in the same chapter, if your name is in the book of life, you kind of get like advanced, uh, no, special, special treatment and get to go to be in heaven until the resurrection. All right. So that's how I would fill in these ideas of, of uh, the first resurrection and the second death and the rest that goes with it. Okay. So that was a lot. Uh, any questions about that? Things that make clear? I'm not understanding what the second death is. Yeah. So I think that would be, um, the the judgment right i mean if you go just a few verses later like verse 14 talks about people being cast into oh yeah there it is uh verse 14 this is the second death the lake of fire right okay Okay. that's yeah that's it's like you're really dead then right Right. okay and eventually we will get to hell for well (laughs) sorry we will talk about hell in class hopefully okay We will be talking about hell later and you know, what, is, what is the state there? What's the expectation? What is this with the fire that's so often associated with it doing? But when is the second death is when that happens. And so first death is just when you die. Right? So cast in the lake of fire at the moment of death. Okay. So are you saying that anybody that dies? Oh, sorry. Hey, go ahead. Okay, so are you saying that when everybody dies the first death, then nobody goes to hell until the judgment? Yeah, at the point of death, I don't see people going to hell. Um, Okay. One of the passages we'll look at next week is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we often, we put a lot of stock in that, I think, for for people's current state. And uh, we'll see Mm -hmm. what that is trying to say and how that fits in here or doesn't. Okay. So, right, final judgment, that's, that's when hell, however we understand it, comes into play. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's uh, Revelation <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> There's a lot we could say about it, and maybe at a later point we will. Um, 
But that at least is showing, right? Consistently, we're seeing this pattern of the point of death, those in Christ, can, will be in heaven with Christ. Um, again, how take Revelation is kind of up to you, but that's a pretty consistent picture there. And that can... Okay, so where do you think on the first... Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so on the first death, so those in Christ go to heaven? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? And, right. and then, it's not the full you, right? Which is what resurrection is about. Mm -hmm. All of you back the, together. But yeah. But, yeah um, but then where do the other people go? If, if they don't go to heaven, where do they go? Do they go to Yeah, I, I would think they're just kind of waiting. Um, I would assume not conscious. That's, that's one of the things that's really not that clear in, in scripture. Okay. When I, when I read it talking about them being in the grave, I'm saying that's that's where they are there's not like this limbo kind of waiting room uh, i know that gets uh, expanded in some uh right. but i don't know it could be okay. i don't see much of a case for that uh, so okay. i think of this as, as being asleep yeah. so. okay okay so as we're wrapping up last thing i want to think about right is what about now right how do we live as we're kind of in in immediate intermediate state right between jesus first coming and second coming between his resurrection and our resurrection and i think one of the things to to the tension we have to deal with is that we build the kingdom right that's not up to us that if we just do enough good things and we'll build the kingdom and jesus can show up and be like hey guys good job you did it let's let's finish this up but also the same on the other hand we're not just meant to, to sit around waiting for when Jesus comes back and God just does everything for us, right? And so instead, we're meant to build for the kingdom, right? We don't build ourselves. We don't just depend on Jesus to do it all. But through the gift of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, we're building for the kingdom, right? We can't do it all ourselves, but we can do some things, right? And often it is little things, little acts of love and mercy and forgiveness, but that's building for the kingdom, and that that matters. Um, and so we live in this kind of already, but not yet. This this tension is in between. Um, right? This is this is kind of the difficulty of, of how we live. And and yet the biblical view so often kind of collapses the distance between now and then. Right? We can think of ourselves as living in the kingdom now, even as we pray for a kingdom to come. Hey, George. Uh, and right it's 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 still coming but it's also here eternal life is then but it's also now and so even to use revelations language right it so often says that it's the last days or that the time is near well it's been near for two thousand years how does that work right but it, it's not talking about like the number of days it's talking about the time that we live in um this is the the final period however long it lasts it could be Right, thousands more years, um, but we use the time that we have to to grow uh, God's kingdom here on earth, and that's our call. And so, we can trust that those who are died in Christ are, are safe in God's hands, however we understand it. Um, but in the meantime, um, we have the courage to live the way that God calls us to. So, all right. Well, thanks everyone. That's our that's Thank our time you. for tonight.